0: Our Father which art in heaven, we're thankful again to be able to come before you. And as we start this session, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and give us direction, guidance, and wisdom. Father, this is a difficult topic because it tugs at so many of the things that we've held dear to us. And I just pray that you may give me the words to share to begin to get us to look at things a little differently. And Lord, you know that I'm in the process of searching and seeking myself. So I ask that you may grant wisdom even in this area. In the name of Jesus, your son, we do pray. Amen. Those of you who heard this before, close your ears. okay? <laughs> no. I, let me tell you a little bit about myself so you'll understand how I got to this place. I am a licensed psychologist and I've been a psychologist for 18, 19 years. I taught at the university level for seven years, taught at Oakwood four and a half, five years, and at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga for two years. Following that, I've been in private practice. So I've been at all ends of the spectrum when it comes to psychology. I've worked on the uh, university campus, counseling students. I've worked with children, even though I'm not a child psychologist. I've done a little work with children, testing and evaluation. Um, I've done research, because when I was at the university, we would do research with the students. So I've kind of touched all aspects of it. About two or three years ago, I was on the Internet, and I ran across a sermon by a pastor. He's here presenting, Pastor Richard O'Phil. And in that sermon, he attacked a lot of what I had learned. And I went to my husband and says, I cannot believe this man is writing this. He doesn't realize what he's saying. And as I began to study more and more about this, I said to myself, there is something here that I need to pay attention to. And I started doing my own studying, and then I was blessed with the opportunity to work with Dr. Nedley for a little over two weeks in his depression recovery program, and I learned even more about true healing. So when I came back to my practice, I said to my husband, I don't know what I'm going to do because most of the things I've been using in my practice is not biblical, neither is it helping people. Tell you what, though, I was padding my pocket because if I saw people for six months or so once a week, I was getting very good money, wouldn't you say? But people, something I failed to mention in my last session, people were feeling better, but they were not getting better. I have to admit that. Why would a person have to see someone for six months and on to obtain healing? Something is wrong with that. And, um, you know, I just realized something. Oh, I'll be talking about that in this session, about how looking, always focusing on the past does not help us. But I started to realize that. And so I am right now not in my practice because I'm asking the Lord to show me what direction I need to take. It means that um, we're living a little differently because the money is not as good. But my husband and I have started a ministry called Being Good Health because he is a student, correspondence student through Uchi Pines, and we're now focusing more on helping people with their health. And I use the mental health piece that I learned with working with Dr. Nedley in my own research. So you all keep me in prayer as I go through this process. However... As I've been reading and learning about this, the Lord revealed to me, you need to start sharing with people what you're finding of how psychology is coming into our homes, into our individual lives, and how it's coming into the church. I would sit in church sometimes and I'd hear someone say something from up front and I'd say to my husband, Al, that's based on psychology. Al, this is based on psychology. And he would say, you know what? You need to start speaking of this so people can realize this. In the last session, I talked about self-esteem. I mentioned that the whole concept of self-esteem is based on secular psychology. And even the research is showing now that people with high self-esteem have more problems with drugs and alcohol, have more problems with hostility, have more problems with violence. Even psychologists are starting to realize that now. They're more hostile. All of these things, self-esteem has not turned out to be the panacea that everybody thought it was going to be. And then I looked at the Bible and looked at how the Bible tells us to deny self, to esteem others better than ourselves. And I talked about how that contradicts how secular psychologists are saying we should exalt self. Then I talked about the fact that the Sermon of the Lord has a quote where she says this does not mean we should not have a proper self-respect. Because we don't push esteeming of self doesn't mean you go down thinking bad about yourself and that you're worthless. No. We ought to have a proper self-respect based on how we live before God, based on following our conscience. And the research is showing that too. That when people base their self-esteem on external things, they're not going to do as well in school. They're going to have more problems interpersonally. But when we base it on, I think the researcher says, um, living according to morals, etc, then we will do better i 'm kind of recapping i 'm going off the top of my head. Then I talked about unconditional love. This is the hardest one to explain to people. this thing about unconditional love because God loves god 's love does show some unconditionality to it. But as I explained in the previous session, the the deception about psychology is that it mixes truth and error together. And when truth and error is mixed together, she tells us the track of truth and the track of error lies close beside one another. And it can appear to be one to minds that are not worked by the Holy Spirit. And psychology has some great things in it. The problem is the basis of it is sometimes not good. This unconditional love came from um, Eric Fromm, a psychologist who has nothing to do with religion and says we should describe love as supreme. And unconditional. And from there, we grabbed that and started to push this unconditional love and started to say that people should have unconditional love for one another. And then Rogers, Carl Rogers, I'm sure you all have heard of him. He talks about unconditional acceptance, saying that we are naturally born good. So if we're naturally born good and if people just leave us alone and don't put any conditions on us, we will just grow to do everything that's right. Does the Bible tell us that? The Bible tells us that there's none that doeth good. No, not one. And the carnal mind is enmity against the law of God. So that's why I caution people about unconditional love and unconditional acceptance, because when you look at the roots of that, it has a lot of humanistic um, concepts to it. Now, I will say there is some unconditionality to God love, because Romans 5, 8 tells us God commendeth his love towards us, and that why will we yet... Sinners, Christ died for us. So there's some unconditionality there. The problem is what has happened because of us as our human minds, we take this unconditionality and say to ourselves, oh, that means I can eat the way I want, I can dress the way I want, I can worship the way I want, because God loves me unconditionally. He doesn't care. You see the danger? So there's the good part about the unconditionality where he does love us without any conditions, but then there's the other part of how far is that going to take us? Okay. And then I also talked about needs. This is another sticky one. You've heard of Maslow with his hierarchy of needs, right? That you have to have the physical needs met, then the safety needs, then the loving belongingness needs, then the esteem needs, and we will be self-actualized. And his idea says if you don't get these lower needs met, then you'll never reach to the pinnacle of your self-actualization. And we've taken the same needs focus and brought it into our lives and our church. That's what the whole seeker-sensitive movement is based on. Have you all heard of that? Man, not many people have heard of that. You've heard of Willow Creek, right? You've heard of Wig Warren, Purpose-Driven Church. All of these, ch- these churches and these um, movements are based on the idea that These people will not come to church if I just preach the regular things to them. So I have to meet their felt needs. Like Maslow says, you have to meet certain needs and they'll grow higher. I have to meet their needs. So I'm going to have all kinds of things going on at church to meet their needs and then they will come in. It sounds good. The problem is we stay at that needs and people are not growing spiritually. I want to read something to you that I read in the last one. Bear with me, those of you who were here. Rick Warren, I'm sorry, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek is now starting to question this move, this push that he has about felt needs. And they're now saying, we made a mistake. This is Bill Hybels from Willow Creek. What we should have done when people cross the line of faith and become Christians, we should have started telling people and teaching people that they have to take responsibility to become self-feeders, meaning we can't just always... Um, feed them by fulfilling their needs and everything. They have to learn how to self-feed. We should have gotten people, taught people how to read their Bible between services, how to do the spiritual practices much more aggressively on their own. So many people are starting, they're starting to realize that this push we have is not, um, helping people as much as, as much as we can. That's kind of a quick run through of what I did before. Um, And I did the best that I can. So we need to move on to the second part of this presentation, the dangers of secular psychology, part two. And I will say there is a true psychology, um, and we're going to talk about that later on. So I'm not downing psychology in general. And I also want to say I would love to see anybody going into clinical counseling psychology here. No, there was more at the last session. I'd love to see some of our people get into psychology where they study the brain. and and the workings of the brain and all of these things. So psychology has some very good aspects to it. Usually we get into it and we want to do the counseling, but there's so many. This whole social psychology, I used to teach social psychology in college, and there's a phenomenon known as groupthink. Y'all remember those where they would show, the research would show that people are afraid to speak up in a group if the whole group thinks a certain way? And I used to use that to explain what's going to happen at the end of time. Some people will not believe some of the things that the government and church and state when they get together is pushing, but for fear of the group, they'll go along. So I'm saying all of this to say psychology has some wonderful things in it. My problem is when they start to talk about the nature of man and how we should change. That's the danger with psychology. And that's what I'm going to be addressing or am addressing in these workshops. Now, let's start here. Emotions and Christianity. Should Christians ignore emotions? What's your thoughts on that? Yes or no? No. We can't. We were created with emotions. That's why the Bible tells us a merry heart doeth what? Good like a medicine. The Bible, God, Solomon is acknowledging that type of emotion helps us. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy, the rottenness of the bones. So God's word does not ignore emotions. I want to get that straight as we move on. However, the difference is emotions for psychologists are primary, and for Christians it should be what? Secondary. I was taught in graduate school that I need to focus on people's emotions. How does that make you feel? You know, that's, that's the first, one of the first questions I would ask people. Oh, you probably felt, what feelings did that do to you? Tell me about the feelings that that brought out. And we'd spend session upon session talking about the feelings and, 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 and I made a lot of money by doing this. And we have to be careful with that. Let's look at some of these feelings. Anger. Secular psychologists, psychologists tell us that we should express anger and we should vent it. That's what I taught people. Remember, you might have heard when psychologists used to say, if you're mad, take a pillow and start hitting it. Do you remember that? That's a, that's a psychological belief that if you get it out, then that's better. Some of you may not have heard of these two women. They wrote a book called The Courage to Heal. I used to use this book a lot with my sexual abuse survivors. And in there, they're saying, listen to what they're telling sexual abuse uh, survivors is the word now. You may dream of murder or castration. Referring to the perpetrators, those who abused you. It can be pleasurable to fantasize such scenes in detail. Let yourself imagine it to your heart's content. This was, I used to, oh God, forgive me. I used to actually tell people to read this and, you know, feel the anger towards the person who abused you and you molested it. Whatever you want to think about what that person has done to you and would like vengeance to be put upon that person. Just imagine it and dream it. Helping them to express that anger. But is that God's way for dealing with anger? He tells us, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You know, I meant to mention this in the last session. I have a book that I've written on this. Christians, beware. We have a booth here that if you're interested in getting this, we have it here. Um, and I also have a DVD of the first session that I did at a church. So if you're interested, we have that here um, at the session. You can check us out at our booths. Now the secular evidence is telling us, evidence indicates that it is unintelligent to encourage persons to be aggressive. Psychologists are kind of changing their tune. Not completely. Most research now says that catharsis, that's a famous psychological word for just letting it all out, isn't helpful and may do what to a person's hostility? Increase it. So this thing about venting it, expressing it, can actually increase your anger instead of making it better. So then, this is a text I used to use. So people used to say, what the Bible says, and I would say that, be ye angry and sin not. Which said to me, it's okay to be angry as long as you don't sin. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. See, that's what I would do as a psychologist. I would take psychology thinking and then use fine scripture to support what I thought as a psychologist. And this was one of them. When people would come in and say, I shouldn't feel angry. I said, no, the Bible says be ye angry. And sin not. What's that? Not a text, a pretext. That's a pretext. <laughs> but I went to the Bible commentary and I thought this was a good explanation. The anger here in Ephesians 4, 28, 26 spoken of is righteous indignation. Righteous indignation has a most important function in stimulating men in the battle against evil. Jesus was not angered by any personal affront, but by hypocritical challenges to God and injustices done to others. Justifiable anger is directed against the wrong act without animosity toward the wrongdoer. To be able to separate the two is a supremely Christian achievement. The idea here is, and this is what I'm trying to get in my mind, Jesus never was angry at anything done to him personally. Only when it was done to others who were less fortunate or it was done against God and his word. And that is what we need to be encouraging. I was about to say something and I just blanked on it. I remember working with a woman um, when I started to change and she came in very angry at her husband who had an affair on her. And in my old days, I would just say, let's talk about that anger. I want you to write about it. If you have dreams, I want you to write your dreams out and I want you to draw pictures of how that anger feels and put the colors in there. I mean, I was really into this stuff. The Lord delivered me for that, from that. And I gave that woman some information about forgiveness. From the Bible and brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this is easy, but I said, I want you to pray and ask the Lord if it is meant for you all to stay together to put that forgiveness in your heart and to ask him to help you to move forward because the husband wanted to work the marriage out. She came to me after two sessions and said, I'm so glad that this was the focus you gave me as opposed to just spending time about my anger. This has helped tremendously. We're getting help ourselves and we're trying to work towards getting our marriage together. Now, I'm not saying in all cases the marriages will stay together, but even if they did decide to go their separate ways because they had biblical, she had biblical grounds for divorce, if she held that anger in her, it would just come out in so many different ways. And God um, was able to use that situation. In God's amazing grace, we hear from the servant of the Lord, it is not the petty feelings and emotions that are to be examined. Closely to study our emotions and give way to our feelings is to entertain doubt and entangle ourselves in perplexity. We are to look away from self to Jesus. So we have advice of how we are to deal with emotions. Let's look at another emotion, guilt. This is by a psychologist. Guilt is the worst experience known to humans. It makes you feel unworthy and miserable. It is caused by thinking you have done something wrong. You are taught to feel guilt when someone judges you about anything, how you dress, how you think, what you do. And she says, this is Dr. uh, Doris Jeanette, there is no right or wrong, only experiences to learn from. So get out there and enjoy learning and living and growing. Toss guilt out. So many psychologists are pushing this idea that you should not feel guilty because it's a terrible emotion and it just leaves you feeling judged and condemned. Some truth, some error. The more sinful and guilty a person feels, the less chance there is he will be a happy, healthy, or law-abiding citizen. He will be a compulsive wrongdoer. This is Albert Ellis, a famous psychologist. We're just talking about how this has come in now let's see its impact on Christianity feel good services if we're not supposed to be feel guilty at all I don't want to come to church and hear a minister point out things that's gonna convict me because guilt is a bad thing you see how that's coming in so my services should be happy and joyful and good music upbeat music because guilt is a bad thing Move away from pointing out sin and calling people to confession and repentance. And this was by a psychiatrist who's not even a Christian. Read what he says. Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? The very word sin seems to have disappeared. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. And when you look at this push on we should not feel guilty, who wants to hear about sin anymore? That's going to lead me to feel guilty. And he's asking, where did that word go? Where did the concept go? But the truth is... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I just came up with this myself. No knowledge of sin leads to no guilt. You won't feel guilty. No guilt leads to what? No confession and repentance. No confession and repentance leads to no forgiveness. No forgiveness leads to no salvation and no victory over sin. Some people don't think that's possible, but we won't talk about that today. No victory over sin leads to eternal death. And no eternal life. So it starts with this, and it can, I'm not saying all, always will, but it can end up here. And she tells us, if we have not experienced that repentance, which is not to be repented of, and have not confessed our sin with true humiliation of soul and brokenness of spirit... Abhorring our iniquity. We have never sought truly for the forgiveness of sin, and if we've never sought, we have never found the peace of God. I want to stop here. The reason all of these things are a concern to me is because as we take in these psychological concepts, we're moving further and further and further away from the Bible. As it's coming into our lives and coming into our church, and here she mentions that if we've not experienced that repentance, We never find the peace for God. Psychologists are saying the only way you'll feel peace is if you don't feel guilt. And she's telling us just the opposite. And we have to get to a point as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, choose ye this day whom you're going to serve, the wisdom of man or the wisdom of God. There are very many in the churches who are deceiving their own souls. They reach a standard of their own creating. They think that religion consists of going to church to hear sermons and have a good happy feeling. They do not comprehend that if they ever reach heaven, it must be by daily self-denial and conflict. This fair-weathered Christianity will not do in the time toward which we are rushing. Under the sun, under the sun of scorching trial, all such will be found what? withered away. We're still talking about guilt here, talking about how ignoring the concept of guilt can get us in trouble as Christians. I like this. How many of you heard of the book Hidden Heresy? Some of you have. I, got, I was able to be blessed, and Pastor Mostert um, wrote a foreword for me, and those who heard the story earlier, I'm going to say it again in here. He wrote the foreword for the book that I have available here, and he was um, attempting to get a graduate degree in psychology at a Baptist seminary or something, at the end of one of his classes, the chairperson of the department, who was a Baptist minister, came to him and says, I have all of Ellen White's books. And he says, I you, church, you as a church are truly blessed. If you would just put together the words and books from Ellen White with the Bible, I believe we'd be able to deal with most of the mental and emotional problems in the world. Amen. A Baptist minister said this. Of course, Pastor Moster dropped out of the program after that because he realized I don't need to be in here. But we don't realize the power that we have in our hands at Seventh-day Adventist. So in his book he says this, When a sinner wanders into the church and sits through skits, mimes, interpretive dances, and the like, and yet never hears a clear convecting message about his dangerous and tenuous spiritual situation, that he is a depraved sinner, oh, psychologists would not like that thought at all, Depraved. Earlier in my last session, Eric Fromm, the guy who helped us coin the phrase unconditional love, says that the idea that we're sinners and have nothing good in ourselves promotes self-hatred. So they wouldn't like that thought. That he is a depraved sinner headed for eternal fire because he is a daily offense to a holy God. How can that be called successful? You could achieve the same level of success by sending a cancer patient to receive treatment from a group of children playing doctor. A sinner must understand, must feel guilt, the imminent danger he is in if he is ever to look to the Savior. Again, I'm going to repeat, the idea that we should not feel guilt as pushed by secular psychology goes against our experience as Christians. We have to be careful. That's why the Bible tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the hope, brothers and sisters. You feel the guilt, but you recognize that our God tells us. He, has an, he is our advocate right now in the most holy place. And if we uh, confess our sins when we feel that guilt, he will be faithful and just to forgive us. Now, the question I have for you, and sometimes I get in trouble when I do this, so I'm just going to get a few comments. Is all guilt spiritually helpful? Would anyone like to, to comment on that? Real briefly, all guilt is it's all spiritually helpful? I think it depends on what you do with it. It depends on what? Your response. To your it. response, what you do with it. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Oh, I wish I could get you. Repeated guilt when you've been forgiven doesn't. Amen. Repeated guilt when you've been forgiven doesn't do you any good. Can you speak up loud? Yes. I think it depends on the source of that guilt. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit convicts yes. our hearts. So if the Holy Spirit's convicted of a sin, then it is good. But if the devil is reiterating and when have done, it's not good. Amen. Amen. Very good. Y'all are on top of it. Consider Peter versus Judas. Did they not both feel guilt? Yeah. Peter felt guilt when he betrayed the Lord. Judas felt guilt when he betrayed God as well. But what happened to the two of them? The Bible tells us, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh what? Yeah. And we see that with Judas and Peter. Peter's guilt led for him to ask for forgiveness and turned him to God to obtain that forgiveness. Judas's guilt Left to self-condemnation and led to suicide. So don't, please understand what I'm saying. There is an unhealthy guilt that will not lead us to cross and to forgiveness. And in that way, psychologists are correct. But they're not correct when they tell us to avoid guilt completely because we can miss out on salvation. You see that? Again, Satan is so sly how he does this. That's why I say truth and error mixed together. Now, let's look at this psychoanalytical theory. Came from my friend right over here is a picture of Sigmund Freud. And in the first session, I talked about how Freud said, we have to understand the impact of childhood to resolve our problems. He says, if you don't understand childhood, you will not be able to resolve your problems. And that's what I spent a lot of time in and made a lot of money doing. I spent sometimes with one client about two years talking about their childhood. I had them draw pictures. I used to do guided imagery where I'd have them close their eyes and go back to visualize the first house they lived in and how it felt and who was there, the color of the walls. I mean, it was amazing the things I did with people. And they were learning. Oh, they were learning so much about their childhood. More and more Christians now are trying to gain insight about their childhood. I don't know how many of you all have heard of Charles Stanley, but this is his quote. If we don't deal with the little boy or girl inside, we cannot know the God of the Bible. We need to understand that little girl and little boy inside, which is the childhood side. There are even workshops going around now. and. Um, I have to be careful with, but workshops, I won't entitle them. That's talking about our need to understand the wounds of childhood and all of that. They're being, they're very popular in many churches nowadays. But the truth is focusing on childhood keeps us in bondage to the past. We never move past the past. That's why Paul tells us, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We're not to be in bondage to our past. If I spend all this time, now I'm not saying it's, it's wrong for you to understand. I have a problem with anger. My father had a problem with anger, and that's who I got it from. I'm, so some of that insight can be helpful for talking about it once or twice. But continuing to talk about it gets us nowhere. It keeps us in bondage to our past. And the Bible also tells us, again, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? New creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Yes, you have a question? Yeah, um, I will have time at the end. Can you write it down and remember? Okay, I definitely will address that at the end. There's even some secular perspectives on this thing about focusing on childhood. Memories can be false. There's a psychologist known, Elizabeth Loftus, and she's done a lot of um, research on eyewitness testimony. And she found that sometimes people say they've witnessed something and if you get five or four, four or five people, they're all telling you that they saw something different. And so from there she started to study memory and find out some of the things we say happened back then might not have really have happened. And she says, with the passage of time, the memory traces seems to change or become transformed. These distortion can cause us to have memories of things that never happened. I actually have had cases like that, where people came to my office and they said, my mother and father did da 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 da. Then I get other family members in there and they're saying, We don't remember this happening the way our sister or brother is saying. Um, You know, if you're getting several of them, there are some situations where certain families, we use the word collude against one another. So I'm not saying that can't happen, but memories can change and and, and that's problematic. The other truth to this is we can't truly know ourselves, even if we do understand the childhood, because the Bible tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So psychologists say you can know yourselves better if you understand your childhood, but the Bible tells us different because we can't truly know ourselves. It covers up sometimes the real cause of our problem, which is the three-letter word. It's often with I in the middle. Sometimes this focus on childhood can cover up the real cause of, and I say some of our problems because I don't want you to get the impression that I'm saying that every time a person has an emotional problem, it's because of some sin they committed. That is not true. But there's sin in the world in general, and psychologists are ignoring this because now instead of sin, there's disease. Alcohol is a disease now. You know that, right? Instead of sin, there's addiction. People don't lust anymore or give themselves over to lusting as in Ephesians 4.19. And we're using these words freely as Christians. Instead of sin, there's what? Dysfunction. I come from a dysfunctional family. Who does it? Can you tell me? Show me someone who doesn't come from a dysfunctional family. It's because of sin. And this is an interesting, if you ever want to find something, Jim Owen, he's not a Seminary Adventist, but he has a book, Christian Psychology's War on God's Word. If you could ever find that book, it would be a powerful one for you to read. In fact, I want to mention another one. This is a secular psychologist. I'd like for you to also look this book up. It's called Manufacturing Victims. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to mention something she says later. Are all psychological problems caused by individual sin? No. We have to be careful with that. If we see someone struggling with depression or anxiety, we have to be careful not to say there must be some sin in their life. They lack faith. You know, on and on and on. And there may be some grains of truth with that, but we have to be so careful because people are really dealing with some deep things sometimes, and we have to recognize how they can be helped. What about psychological therapy or counseling that doesn't focus much on childhood? Some psychologists don't pay a lot of time focusing on childhood. They use what's known as behavior therapy to help people change behaviors. So the question is, oh, well, if they don't focus on childhood, maybe we can go to that type of psychologist. But there's a problem. It can be helpful, but they do not lead to heart change. So if you have certain destructive behaviors, there are some techniques that really can help you stop certain destructive behaviors. I've used them. I've found that they're helpful. But there's a danger that the person can go back into that because the the psychology does not address the heart change. And that's the only thing that will give lasting changes in our behavior. I worked at an agency that specialized in treating sexual offenders. And we use all kind of behavioral techniques to help the sexual offenders. Sad to say, we're all adults in here, so I can mention this one. We used, I I didn't do this, I stopped working because my um, supervisor at the agency said I had to do this, and I said I can't do this. We had to teach them forms of using self-abuse, so they would abuse themselves instead of abusing other children behavioral it stopped them from abusing other children but it started other problems as well so they did a lot of behave some of you all don't know what self-abuses um I, i'll just say it it's masturbation okay and that's a behavioral change but in the psychology wor- world the idea is self-offenders can't be cured just controlled and that's because psychologists don't look at the heart change of course they can't cure them without changing the heart The problem with depending on therapists is that the Bible tells that cursed be the man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm. I had a woman that I worked with for about two or three years, and I was like her pill. She was a sexual abuse survivor. She'd come into me every week, and if she missed one week, she would just go crazy. And what I found out as I started to learn more about the truth, I was this woman was too dependent on me. And that's what happens a lot when we go to these therapists. We become dependent on man, and the Bible says, Cursed be the person that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. The essential role of every Christian is to learn complete dependent on Christ and not upon man. That's the essential role. Oh, we're running out of time. Okay, let's move along here. Um, And then the other thing about going to see therapists is we don't recognize that suffering is in our life for a reason. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Some of us run to therapists because we're trying to avoid suffering. We're trying to avoid pain. And some of you may be reading the Sabbath school's lessons now. We're seeing that trials work wonderful things in our lives. And when we run to therapists to avoid that, we're missing out on a lot. And that's why in First Peter, Peter tells us, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. This is not easy, though, when we're going through things. But the Bible gives us this admonition. Why have psychological theories and therapies become so popular in the church? Why do Christians automatically turn to the psychological wisdom of men when they are experiencing problems of living and emotional turmoil? Perhaps one of the reasons is that we do not comprehend the wisdom of God through the process of suffering. When anyone despairs of God in the midst of suffering and thereby turns to psychological theories and therapies, they not only lose out on the possibility of spiritual growth, but they postpone the real help that God both promises and provides. That's the danger of depending on therapy. Now, the secular evidence. This is the woman who wrote the book, Manufacturing Victims, Dr. Dana Tanen. She was a clinical psychologist, and she started to study psychology, and she recognized, I don't need to do this anymore, because she says clinical psychology seeks to categorize people in debilitating ways and turn them into victims and patients. That's all you hear. Psychologists now translate all of life into a myriad of abuses, addictions, and traumas. And she goes on to talk about how we're making so much money by turning everything into abuse, addiction, or trauma. And that's what's happening. Is Christian therapy any better? Listen to this. One night as I was driving, I was listening to a well-known Christian psychology program on the radio. On this program, a lady called and told how the Lord was using her. However she was also a little discouraged because she did not have much christian support. I was thinking to myself surely with a little encouragement from the word they could help her and ed- help and edify her. By the time the two christian counselors were done with her however they had convinced her that she belonged in a clinic. They told her she had underlying difficulties that required professional counseling. I could not believe what I heard. What also struck me was that these men Christian counselors were not instructing people from the scripture, instead they primarily were using theories of psychology. I used to advertise myself as a Christian psychologist, you know, insurance companies would refer people to me who wanted a Christian counselor. And what I was doing, I was using Freud, I was using Rogers, I was using Maslow, then I was finding scripture that seemed to fit what all these men said. And I was a Christian counselor. We have to be careful. Even with that, because a Christian counseling label does not mean that a person is truly using the God's way for healing. Listen to this. This was from a Christian psychologist group. We are often asked if we are, quote unquote, Christian psychologists and find it difficult to answer since we don't know what the question implies. We are Christians who are psychologists, but at the present time, listen to this. There is no acceptable Christian psychology that is markedly different than non Christian psychology. This is a Christian psychologist saying here. As yet, there is no acceptable theory, mode of treatment that is distinctly Christian. Scary, isn't it? To me, it is. Because many of us say we need to look for a Christian psychologist, a Christian counselor. And I'm not saying they're not out there. There are those who use the Bible above the theories of psychology. You have to look for them like, what do they say, a needle in a haystack? They're not very common. They're out there, though, and if you're really looking for that, you can find it, but um, it's not very common. Is counseling wrong? If it is, then the Bible wouldn't say, for by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war, and in the multitude of counselors there is safety. I'm not here to put an X mark against counseling. But I'm here to help you understand you need to know the type of counseling you're going into. So I wanted to just share these following um, elements for true true counseling for Christians should include this. A person who relies on biblical principles. A person who does not say you have to come in for a large number of sessions. If you are attending counseling and you're going in for a large number of sessions, something is wrong with that. Something is wrong. The counselor does not need, and I've had arguments with, no, not arguments, disagreements with people on this. Counselor does not need any specialized psychological training per se. They do not to give counseling based on God's way. It discourages a person from focusing too much on self. It points to people to where? Jesus and not the counselor as the source of help. This woman that I saw for two or three years, I was pointing to myself as her source of help. Sure, I'd throw a few scriptures at her here and there, but I was her source of help. That's why she was so dependent on me. And that's not true biblical counseling. So these are some things that I think we need to look at if we're looking for true biblical counseling. And... I have to say, all of these things goes against what most of us have been exposed to. And we have to take this information and bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, help me with this, because this, this contradicts everything that I've learned. Um, where do we go from here? Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a little bit of this and then we'll stop because we want to finish this. We must turn back to God's word. That's, that's the only way. It sounds real simplistic, but that's the only way we will get help. And it takes faith because the Bible tells us without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is rewarded of them that diligently seek him. In the last session, when I talked about the mega churches and all of this, if we don't by faith believe that God's method for church growth will work, we're not going to do it because the mega churches seem so successful. They're growing by leaps and bounds. But we must believe by faith we can do this. New worship styles, new programs, new ministries, new sermons. Have they been successful? Are they effective? I'm going to leave this here and continue that in the next vein because we have 10 minutes and I want to do some questions and answers with you all. And this young man has a question. Mm-hmm. no i was not implying that because that's impossible to do you can't ignore what ha- has happened i was saying that we shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to understand it or focus on it big difference we can't ignore our childhood that's part of our lives but if we as a psychologist i was trained that i should spend a lot of time helping you to understand and gain insight from that and that doesn't help in any way it, Yes, it does, but it's already happened. What can you do about it? But how does that help you? That's the question. It helps you identity. No, it does not. It, it does not. That's the thing. That's, the, that's what psychology has ingrained into us. If you spend a lot of time focusing on it, it does not help because it's already happened and we have to deal with the future right now and see what we can do about becoming the people who we are to be and not focusing on understanding. A lot. Yes. I have a question, but I hope it answers this question. Um, last, I think it was last evening in the sermon, that's why you said we have to be born again. Amen. Because the carnal nature, we will have things that will happen because of our past, but that's why Christ says be born again and all that's done away We are new creatures. New creatures. Yes. I have a question, in our Sabbath school class, um, there are individuals that experience depression over mm. a long period of time. And the question was can Christians be in a state of depression? Yes. And Oh, well, I can point them to a lot of things about changing our thoughts in the word of God, because we find out depression has a lot to do with how we think. And we have to learn how to replace the thinking that brings us down with the word of God. Number one. But a lot of people who are depressed, as I learned from working with Dr. Nedley, I'm looking over here because he was here earlier. It's dysfunctioning of the brain. And we need to help them to understand there's some things in your lifestyle you need to change to help your brain to function better, and that pulls them out of the depression as well. So no, yes, Christians can become depressed if they're following the wrong lifestyles, they're not eating right, they're not exercising enough, they're not getting enough sleep. That's real, and we can't ignore that. So very good question. Yes, yes. Oh boy, Carl Jung and personality tests. You know, there's some merit to some of those tests um, because sometimes they're legitimate in terms of distinguishing different personality characteristics. But my problem is, so what? Okay, I find out that I'm an introvert. Okay, uh, I find out that I um, have problems with discipline or procrastination. It still goes back to we have to turn to God for our help in these areas. But, so, I mean, some of them are legitimate. But, you know, Carl Jung was as spiritualist as you can get. I don't know if you'll realize that. He was deep into the occult. And I'm afraid of people with that kind of perspective, you know, using them as to help people, especially when it comes to the mind. not saying we can't use people who don't believe in God, but when it comes to dealing with the mind, if people don't believe in God, I think we need to be careful. Yes. I know my temperaments and, uh, other people's. Also, we can unconditionally accept each other. He he said, if uh, if we know each other's temperaments, then we can unconditionally accept one another. He was being facetious. This is a past over here. He's being funny. (laughs) Um, Just a question. I'll try to speak louder. Okay. Um, I think that a lot of these methods should work who need it but the, when the system is telling you that you can't. Yeah, Well you have to rethink what you're going to do. I mean honestly. And the other thing is I've seen I have since I've become more knowledgeable there's a way you can present the Bible and not even say the Bible to people. You can pull principles out of the Bible. Like, for example, if a a per working with a young person and the teachers, all they know is self-esteem. This person doesn't feel good about themselves. You can talk to that young person about um, what are some actions that you're engaging in that helps you have this view of yourself. You know, you could talk about adhering to what their parents have told them that's true and things like that. So there are principles you could pull from the Bible and not slap the Bible on top of it. But that's going to take, I'm going to tell you, young lady, that's going to take a lot of study and prayer on your part. But it can be done. It can be done. Are you going to be a school psychologist? Oh, well, you won't be doing some of this stuff I'm doing. It's more testing for IQ and all of that. When so you um, like IEPs and stuff, you still have to get the principles to give to the teachers. How do you give them those principles without saying read are Bible? Oh, okay. But IEPs, they're not based on these from what mm-hmm. I understand. Really? Oh, little that I know. You have to pray about that. I don't have a a set answer for you. But I do think if you study the Bible enough, you'll be able to pull principles out to help them. I really do. That will go against some of what they're teaching. But if they follow it, they'll see differences more than the typical IEPs. I just have to believe by faith that that can be done. Yes, in the back. Dr. Parks, really quick, um, I think you are being recorded. Yes. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, yeah. That's a good and idea. And not only that, in all our, even in our Adventist system, the schools, the, the universities, the textbooks that we are required to read, yes. it has, it's
1: all steeped into yes.
0: all the things that you are saying, and having that mindset to even push changes in the school system that our church you know, supports. Yeah, yeah, that's a... That's something I know, no one that I know has addressed that. But that's, you know, sister, it's funny. <laughs> well, praise the Lord. Um, but the, the problem is, what was I going to say? Um, I have repented to the Lord many of times for the things that I've taught students. I often want them to, I'm like, Lord, let me run across them that, that I can say to them, Freud was wrong, throw him out. <laughs> you know, but it's. It's a prayer thing, and to be honest, I don't want to sound pessimistic. I don't know if the system is going to change. I think we as individuals, as God gives us insights, we will change. But this is so ingrained in the system, I can't see it changing, to be honest with you. Is is there an association of uh, Adventist psychologists? Yes, there is an association of Adventist psychologists, but they use all of this. You know, sad to say. Help them be born again. (laughs) Uh, This is this message, um, I'm here at GYC and it's being received well, but this message is not going to be received well by many because um, this message will take a lot of money out of people's pockets. And we have to pray for our brothers and sisters because I believe the majority of Adventist counselors and psychologists who are doing this really believe they're helping people. I don't believe they're being malicious. I don't believe they're trying to deceive people. I think they are deceived. And so we need to pray that God will unlock their minds, because it was a hard process for me. I'm going to tell you, we're living, and our Lord has blessed us, but each month we're saying, okay, Lord, where are our bills coming from? Because I refuse to practice like this anymore. I'm not preparing myself of any kind of martyr, but I just know this is not God's way. I'm convinced of this, and I have to follow his way, whatever that means. I have another hand that I see. No? Wow. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hmm, okay. Using the word guilt versus conviction. That's a very good, um, so you're saying with that, say, say more on that. Um, uh, you'll find with, from my limited knowledge of studying uh, mental illnesses, um, you'll
1: find that the individual will experience a lot of excessive guilt. Yes, you're very right on and that.
0: it's, as far as I can see with people, it is excessive. That's all there is to it. There's actually no logical reason right. for it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. will lead you into truth. Right. And so as with guilt we can, like all the principles brought out, we can throw it away and be like, look, the spirit has convicted me. By faith I am going forward. Amen. And I'm not going to focus on that. There's nothing more I need to say. You've said that well and you I'm glad you brought that out. Guilt when I used to work in a psychiatric hospital, I did it for six months. And a, a large number of the people there were dealing with guilt from um from religion. Yes. I ha I hate to say it. Um, They didn't, uh, they, and notice I said religion. Big difference versus Christianity and spirituality. From the do's and don'ts of religion and they can't measure up enough or is God really going to burn me in hell or all these kind of misconceptions. So guilt can be very damaging. We have to be very careful with that. So thank you, sister, for bringing that up. Yes, anybody else? Okay, last question. I deal with a lot of at risk youth. Okay. but the schools that I'm in a lot of the kids they've written them off so much that they allow me to utilize my testimony utilize the Bible as well and uh, I do a lot of follow up work it's a lot of hands on but it's hard to deal with them utilizing the Bible because a lot of them have negative connotations Mm -hmm. when it comes Mm to the Bible, and when it comes to church, because of something that may have happened in their past with their parents or something, Mm -hmm. how do you get past that? Of them not dealing with the Bible? Yes, because of the negative connotations associated with it from that. Let me repeat the question. He said he works with a lot of at-risk youth who are, the, the, the schools has basically kind of thrown away, for lack of a better word, but they don't want to hear anything about the Bible because they've had negative experiences in the past about the Bible. So how do you deal with that? The first thing is that you need to be a living Bible yourself. I mean, when they see how you respond to them, because I've seen this happen time and time again, when you live out those principles and some way down the line you mention church or Christianity or something, they're going to remember I saw this person and he represented this. I want to move towards that. That's the first thing I could say. Um, and after that, I have to say you have to pray. But I, as I said to the, the young lady here, if you really study the Bible, you could pull out principles to use for them where it says that um, if your enemy, uh, oh boy, I'm forgetting the thing about heaping coals of fire on them, you can explain to them instead of fighting these people back, You trick them and treat them nicely and see what this bully will do to you. You know what I'm saying? So you can pull principles out the Bible and share it with them and never mention the Bible. But again, that's going to take study on your part. It can't be just done. Flippantly, you have to study and say, "Lord, show me some principles I could use." And you know what? I wanted to mention with the at-risk youth too. In education, Ellen White talks about how labor—I think it's educational ministry of healing—how labor is good for idleness. I wish if if your school would trust you, you could be innovative and and find something where these youth can do something to build things or to 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 grow gardens or something. Because that's been found to be very effective with at-risk youth. You could be an innovator in that area and see how that works. You never know. Okay, thank you so much, and may God bless you. Stop by our booth. Support our ministry if you can. (laughs) God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.